This is Music Mentality with Angie. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, welcome back. I'm Angie, and I'm also grateful because, as always, each guest on this show brings such a unique presence. This week we have Larkal. Larkal performs piano with these live visuals that are in sync with his music, making his performances not like any other. We discuss the toxicity of music school and touch on the topic of vulnerability in regards to learning to sing. We dive into the topic of performing, particularly how often we misperceive a mistake for a bad performance. Not the same thing. Finally, for all you parents listening out there, we talk about how Larkal's children play an influence in his music and mental health and the impact on his creativity. You can find his music on all streaming services by searching his name the way you see it in this episode. Enjoy! Hello! Hi, how are you? Hey! Yeah, pretty good. Very summery weather here. Um, Ooh! Nice! Which is, you know, nice, but I'm sort of up on this mezzanine, so it gets it gets very warm. Up Where here. are you located right now? Uh, I'm in Bath. In the okay. UK, which is very beautiful. Nice. Yeah, it's a beautiful sort of countryside area. It's not like hip and happening so much, but it's close to Bristol and London. So that's really cool. Things happen there. I it's, visited, I've been all around England for one summer and it was like so beautiful. I loved it. I don't know. Yeah, there's there's something about the the climate and countryside and all of that that I feel like it's it's what like in North America, we sort of think of as the countryside, even though most North American countryside doesn't look like that. Oh, that's so nice, though. I must say, very, very beautiful. Very different from Toronto, which is where mm. I am. Um, yeah, I mean, I like Toronto, but it's, yeah, it's not countryside. <laughs> no, no, it's the furthest thing from that, definitely. It's more New York than it is country. I would love for you to kind of introduce yourself. Usually I would introduce the artists on the show, but you have such a creative twist to your artistry. And I would love to hear how you combine, you know, visual elements to music. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So I'm Lark Hall. I perform piano music with live visuals and I've built a system that can listen to my performance and create visuals in real time as I play. So I can play, you know, a little bit faster or slower the way that a musician reacts in you know to the specifics of of the of the moment um and the visuals follow um, mm -hmm. the unique thing about it is that the system also understands what's musically important in what mm -hmm. i'm playing so it can tell the difference between a melody note and an accompaniment figure or what's a bass note or when a section changes and then the visuals can change in response to that as well 
That's really cool. How did you come up with this idea and how did you create, like make it happen? Yeah. yeah it's been a, a you know, a, a development process for a while. I started, I think it started when I was recording my 2019 album, mm-hmm. which I recorded at home. And I have a piano that has these sensors built in. So you can get like MIDI data. You can kind of get the notes that you played back uh you know, in addition to the the sound that comes out of the piano. Mm-hmm. So we're, I recorded that, not really knowing exactly what I wanted to do with it. I just, you know, I had this album recorded and then I had this data and I started playing around with ways of visualizing it. And uh, yeah, it just grew into this system of, of you know, these, these live visuals and well, these, at first they were all based on pre-recorded data, but I, then I thought, well, I need to be able to do this live. So I built a kind of data pipeline thing so, so that I could, you know, do it off of a, a just a normal acoustic piano. It doesn't have to have any special sensors. And um, wow. and the, yeah, the algorithm can tell where I am in a piece, partially because it has a version of the score. So I have like a machine readable version of the score. So it's not just, the computer isn't just sort of listening blind saying, oh, I think that's a G and a, I don't know, E flat, uh, but it knows sort of, oh, the next thing that is meant to happen in the piece is this chord and can just say like, has it happened yet? And okay, it's happened. Oh. What's the next event? Uh, and that is a lot more computationally possible to do, especially, you know, yeah. in real time than just sort of asking a computer like, oh, what notes am I playing? Um, that's... that's because you can play so many different notes on a piano and often very quickly. Uh, it, it's really difficult to identify them accurately if you don't have that hint. But then yeah. with that hint, the algorithm can be pretty accurate. That is so cool. That is like so creative. Thanks. You know, Thanks. it kind of reminds me of, have you ever heard of synesthesia? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. A lot of times people ask me if I have synesthesia and I very much don't. Oh. And in a sense, I think that's kind of what not what makes me able to do this, but I think that's because I don't have any specific visual response to mm-hmm. what I'm hearing. I have a sort of blank slate to to make any mapping between it. And I think because I've known some people with synesthesia, I, you know, I think anytime someone has a kind of special thing like that, you get a little bit jealous. And I think I probably thought, oh, what, what could I do that's kind of like that? <laughs> no, it's really cool. I wonder if you've ever gotten like reactions from folks with synesthesia, like how did they react? Like, would the colors match up to what they saw? Would it like conflict with what they saw and like mm. create like a dissonance? How would they react? Do you know? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I imagine uh, because yeah, different people with synesthesia have different, you know, assignments between colors and sounds and letters and numbers. And um, so I imagine for for someone, it could be that, oh, wow, you know, that piece has the colors that the sounds have, mm-hmm. or it could be, uh, you know, oh, no, those are totally wrong. Um, but I, I guess, I mean, one thing that I've heard is that if you do combine the sort of the right uh, color with a certain pitch, for example, mm-hmm. that for the people that I've talked to, there isn't a sense of like, yes, there's just a sense of like, oh, well, it was there already. Like it was that mm-hmm. E flat was already yellow. So the fact that you put yellow with it is like fine. But it's like, it's like if someone was wearing two name tags, like we don't really, you know, oh, you don't need the second one. It's like, oh, it's obviously it's yellow. So <laughs> it might, it might be more interesting to them if 
the colors that I used were like nicely harmonious, like made good color combinations oh. with the ones that they saw. I mean, I have no idea. This is all speculating. Of course, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah, I can only speculate too. And for those yeah, who yeah. don't know what synesthesia is, it's basically associating colors with different sounds, letters, numbers. Um, so that's why it's there's just such a similarity between creating music and, you know, visual effects and art with that music which makes it so interesting. So now kind of like, I wish there was like a synesthetic person in this conversation who could like comment on this. Um, but in any case, you've been playing instruments for a really long time and you started off with piano and I read your story on your website. And I just want to say like the way you romanticize your love for piano and music in general, but particularly piano is not only relatable, but just so beautiful. Like it's like told oh, in such a, like a cinematic way it's so beautiful oh um, that's lovely to hear yeah so you did mention how your first love was piano right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so me too and I've said this numerous times on my pod I've said this too many times on my podcast actually how like you know piano for me was my first love and failing my 10th level of the conservatory of music here in Canada was my first heartbreak so I'm curious yeah, to hear yeah. if if music and piano was your first love, what was your first heartbreak when it came oh, to Oh, that's music? really interesting. Um, I mean, so in, I always used to say in America, we don't have grades like that. Like I moved to the UK and that was kind of the first time I heard about a kind of grade system. I think they maybe exist in America, but it was not something that I ever knew about growing up or, or heard about. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I can imagine if there had been that kind of like national graded system, it really puts a, a frame around your musical growth that I think isn't helpful. Uh, I think that, I think there can be helpful ways to engage with it, but not yet, yeah, not the way that I generally see people doing it. The thing, I mean, cause I've, I've thought about this a lot since moving to the UK and, and hearing a lot about the, the grade system. And to me, it feels like the grade system, the way to interact with it is not that you work and work and work and then get your grade one and then you work and work and work and get your grade two. It's that you play music and you think, well, I could obviously get a grade one. And you just go get your grade one one day and you don't really think about it too much because it's super easy, right? And you're actually playing at whatever we would, you know, you'd think of as a grade three or four or something level. <clears throat> and you can just kind of go in and it's just this kind of, you know, just a thing you do one afternoon with obviously maybe a little bit of prep, but that you, you know, you, it isn't this focus of a year or more of, of preparation because that's just not, that's not what music's for. Yeah, <laughs> no, you're um, right. How could um, you put a grade on music? That's, how could you put a grade on anything? Honestly, I have a lot of bones to pick with the grading <laughs> systems all over. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it, it, you know, and I think obviously if you're, you're doing a competition or you are, you know, auditioning for a, like an orchestra spot or something, there are times when you have to pick one person or a couple of people out of a field of applicants. And of course there's mm -hmm. going to be assessment in that situation, but when you're growing up playing music, there's, there's, so much potential for social music making and for music to just be part of your life um, in a way that can just really bring you joy and connection with other people and carry on into adulthood uh, mm -hmm. in a way that, yeah, just like working by yourself in a room to get a grade is like not. Anyway, that's a tangent because uh, I didn't do any of that growing <laughs> up. Um, I think I, I, in, terms of, in terms of heartbreak, 
I think there was a little bit of heartbreak when I first got to uni and sort of realized that my background did not line up with the background of the sort of person who normally goes to get a classical piano degree. Um, I remember um, there was one, one guy, so this is in, yeah, freshman entering class, and this guy, had, he, you know, he's from New York City, he'd done Juilliard, uh, pre-college he'd been playing chamber music at Juilliard since he was like eight oh. and he just knew the repertoire and he had this advanced sense of, of musicality that was like so so refined and I was really jealous of that because it was like well I don't have that but there's no way in the middle of nowhere growing up that I could have gotten that I mean there's there are ways of becoming musical but there's not a way to get that pedigree unless you happen to be in that in that location yeah. and so um, I worked really, really, really hard, uh, to, to try to level up. Um, and I spent quite a few years practicing probably more than I should have, uh, <laughs> to try to, you know, catch up to that. And, um, and in a sense I did, and also in a sense, like I could have gone and had fun a little bit more. I think that I didn't really appreciate how much that like university experience is pretty short and you don't get that again. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can, you can obviously, you can always go back to school and study, but you never get that experience of being, you know, a really young adult with all these other people who are doing the same thing. And oh, yeah. it's, there's just like a freshness to that, that, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think just engaging more with other people would have been, would have been good. And even if it cost me sort of, you know, 3% of my piano technique, yeah. <laughs> would have been would have probably been worthwhile so so that was that was kind of uh I've, I haven't thought about it in terms of heartbreak specifically but it was definitely a, a difficult time yeah one that obviously very much so stood out to you um and mm. I think it's like a very very common um sentiment that you just echoed basically saying that like well he has this, why don't I? I feel like that's like really common in the artist community, especially because, you know, we compare genres so much. We compare artists so much. Mm -hmm. We dehumanize artists and celebrities and singers. So it's like to say, oh, they have something I don't. Well, objectively, you have something that most, if not all artists don't, you know, mm -hmm. um, you have like your twist to it that other people, particularly this fellow that you were talking about, can say that he definitely doesn't have, you know, um, unless they were inspired by your work and have decided to create something of the similar like. Mm. So I must say definitely a very, very similar sentiment. Like I felt it as well. And I think it really comes from imposter syndrome and not being able to realize like how much we do have and how far we have come and like realizing that we don't have to be this person or that person and that who we are is exactly, it's the destination. It's exactly where we're supposed to be and who we are yeah yeah there's a real um there's a real importance in developing yourself and your voice as a music creator and I think yeah like I he was playing this you know this beautiful Mozart and I wanted that like in the moment I was like oh I want to play beautiful Mozart but like that's not my thing like yeah obviously I would love to be able to play beautiful Mozart and speak Chinese and like any other number of things <laughs> but like the things that I'm actually going to devote time to in my life are not becoming a professional level Mozart interpreter. That's just not my mm -hmm. thing. Um, mm -hmm. And so thinking about it in terms of like what really fits me 
it lets me then like not begrudge him being this amazing like Mozart interpreter. It's just cool. You found this thing. You're great at this. Amazing. You're great at this thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, and so I think digging a little bit deeper, the thing was really like, not like, oh, I specifically want to play Mozart, but like, I don't know what my thing is. Mm. Right. And that's like a more personal kind of like, oh, I have to really figure that out. So how did you figure it out? Well, it, I mean, the, what my thing was, I think it, I think it's always a it's always like an approximation like like people talk about um scientific theories as being like they're never right right they're they're useful right until they're wrong and they become more and more accurate right yeah. um I mean maybe that's a just comparison that only makes sense in my head but um <laughs> I think what I did at first was play a lot of new music. That was mm -hmm. something that fit with me. So I was playing music by living composers. I was starting to write music. Yeah. Uh, and I found some success with that, but it wasn't really a perfect fit. Um, I have uh, some issues with the way that the new music world um, it, it kind of focused, I think, too much on what I see it as what is um, trauma from the Second World War that essentially has been crystallized into performance practice Whoa, and well, compositional practice, um, and that's sort of why music has to sound that way. You know, wait, in, in can sort you of, explain this? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, I should preface this all by saying that I think that the new music community has really moved on in the last ten years, and I'm seeing a lot of really exciting stuff and and things that feel like we've kind of digested that you know that that era and and are starting to move on from it I think that maybe could have happened 50 years before and we could have had a lot more you know uh less aversive music um and and I you know again I think that there's a place for that um I I really like some music that is some work to listen to mm -hmm. but I think that the way that academic music and sort of experimental music uh, has been set up is that it has to be a certain amount, you know, aversive and experimental and boundary pushing and using weird pitch collections and, and things like that, or else it's not serious. Um, and I think, so the thing about trauma is that essentially after the Second World War, there were a lot of composers who understandably had had a very traumatic time and wanted to express this in their music and they wrote a lot of music that was really you know, expressing this, or, you know, attempting to express this kind of inexpressible horror and trauma. Um, but then at the same time, things like the Marshall Plan uh, came in and gave a bunch of composers in Europe and particularly Germany, um, this kind of institutional platform um, mm. to produce their music without really having to connect with an audience. And this is where we get the disconnect between mm. um, what people want to hear and what composers are composing and 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 you know I mean this is all very kind of broad strokes there have been disconnects before and people don't always you know that people aren't the composers aren't kind of always like pushed around by market forces there have been lots of mm -hmm. lots of times when that hasn't really been the case but what I see this as is kind of taking that traumatic period and turning it into an aesthetic oh. in a way that then people you know if you if you have tenure and you're a professor and you're teaching students and then you kind of you know inculcate this 
way of music sounding into, into them. And it just becomes the way academic music sounds. Yeah. Uh, and, and there was this really long period, I think, from the 50s through the 80s or 90s, where, you know, some people were doing really different things and some things were changing in music, but there was a kind of standard center, I think, to academic mm -hmm. music that didn't, it didn't move very much. Interesting. Uh, and and I think it I think it kind of comes down to to that. So I'm probably making some academic music people really mad by saying <laughs> that, uh, to which I can only say sorry. Um, but but there's been I mean even when I was in university there you'd see composers and performers saying you know oh they really wanted to be they, they were influenced by popular music and people wanting to kind of bridge this divide. Yeah, and it felt very um self-conscious and a mm -hmm. little bit a little bit sort of reachy at the time mm -hmm. and the thing that I've seen now more recently is it feels like um there's a much more natural connection you have people who've actually grown up doing both things and have merged them uh and and it feels like the two musics actually are starting to touch which is exciting because that's where I yeah. want to be I have this real classical sensibility and background but I'm also like not your kind of you know purebred classicalist <laughs> I've played in bands and I've, I've just come up from outside the classical tradition as well yeah and so the more that there's this like overlap between the two worlds I'm ex I'm really excited because I, I feel like that's where I live and seeing it's other people be there is, is really exciting yeah, it sounds really interesting, you know, bringing in um, generational trauma, historical trauma, and seeing how it plays a role in the upbringing of music. Mm. Um, yeah, it's so interesting. I grew up on classical. I, I was in the Royal Conservatory of Music here in Canada, which, again, recently found out that it's just known to Canada. But um, so I grew up on classical music, and I can definitely see what you're talking about, especially when I took, you know, like a history of music and all. Um, but that being said, in terms of classical music, I remember growing up and hating that I was playing Mozart and Beethoven and Bach. And I was like, oh, first of all, I can't bring a piano to a campfire. I can't play like no one can sing to, freaking, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. whatever song I can't think of right at the top of my head right now. But like, I hated that. The fact that I felt like my community, this is like really weird, but this was my sentiment when I was like, 10 years old, 11 mm -hmm, years mm -hmm. old, but my community was not my age. My community was people older than me because I felt classical music was specifically for older generations, older people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and you can't sing along to, and it's not fun. And, you know, like, though it might be objectively pretty and impressive, it's like, okay, that's kind of where it ends. And I hated that. I hated that I couldn't build a community, my community from that base. Mm, um, yeah, but yeah. hearing, you know, you say, you wish you could play Mozart and, you know, X, Y, Z. That's really interesting for me to hear because I've, I've not really, I've, I just recently started feeling that way where I started embracing the fact that I grew up on classical music and loving classical music and like repeating some of the songs that I played years ago. So um, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? You know, cool versus not cool instruments and pieces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's so many different social contexts that music happens in, and and different uses that we put music to. Mm -hmm. And you know, I mean, the the role of the piano as a like a courtship instrument, right? That was like such a, you know thinking of social uses that that music 
had. I mean, that was a big reason why there was a piano in every home in the kind of late mm -hmm. 19th, early 20th century. Um, and yeah, very much not a courtship instrument today. Uh, we, don't, we don't sort of do courtship in the same way. And, you know, if there is one, it's probably gone back to being the guitar, you know, instrument of seduction. You can carry yeah. it under someone's window, et cetera, uh, you know, with it, which has been the kind of courtship instrument since it was the lute. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think there are ways, well, going back for a second to like overlaps between different things. One mm -hmm. of the things that really helped me musically was singing and specifically singing in the sacred harp tradition, which if you're not familiar, if listeners aren't familiar, is the acapella singing tradition that grew out of English four-part singing, but it developed in the American South and East in the 17 and 1800s mostly. Mm -hmm. And so it's a notated music tradition, but it was developed in communities where a lot of the people singing it couldn't read, let alone read music. And so there's this mm -hmm. system of shaped note heads that let people uh, learn to read very easily and quickly. So the note heads are shaped differently depending on the function of the note. Mm -hmm. And it all sounds kind of heady, but then with the way you learn it is actually you just sit down, you kind of hear the songs for a while and go, oh, I don't know what's going on. And then you start to go, oh, no, I recognize this one. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to try singing along with this. Yeah. And um, there were so many things that really uh, were a great, like a, a great match for me in terms of that community. I mean, one was just community. Uh, two, I didn't have a great connection with voice. And I think that's really important for a musician in general, uh, especially when you're, you're writing music or even, or interpreting music really. Um, and so to be able to build that in a way where there's no, director no one's in charge um so you're sitting in a square so all the parts are facing each other and there's no nobody's in charge and there's no performances like that thing that you get together to do is the thing you're not rehearsing for something that oh. that is the thing and so someone will just get up and say 271 and then everybody sings 271 one time <laughs> and then someone else gets up and they're like 80 84 and then you sing 84 one time so sometimes it goes well sometimes it doesn't go as well but like that's, there's also not this thing of like, start from bar 20, you know, let's try to yeah. make this bit better this time. It's like, you know, there's none of that. You're just making music together and some people get stuff spectacularly wrong and that's fine. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody's trying to be as good as they can, but um, there's no, nobody's ever going to say, oh, you did that wrong, mm -hmm. you know? Wow. Um, so so that- freedom. Yeah. And it's really, so the, the thing that, that, struck me about that in uh, in relation to what you were saying is that it's this overlap between classical-ish music right it comes from this notated tradition you have a book you're singing out of a book and a social music tradition where you know nobody's saying you're doing something wrong you're just getting together and singing and it's not something that you need training to get into you can just turn up and learn it mm. through that kind of microculture of just being there and hearing the songs and so finding things like that and creating things like that, I think is really important for music yeah. generally, because we don't have the same kind of social music making that we did a hundred years ago. And I think it's really important to have that and to nurture those. Yeah. You're really getting rid of, you know, there's no coloring within the lines because there's really very limited lines to color within. So I feel like that really, really, really um, emphasizes and develops your ability to think more freely, think outside of the box, you know? challenge yourself in mm -hmm, ways mm -hmm. that you wouldn't be challenged 
when it comes to reading specific notes and playing in a specific way. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like all folk musics, there are right and wrong ways of doing things. Uh, so mm. there are things that you do that aren't necessarily notated, uh, but you pick them up by being part of the community. Right. And so, cool. you know, you're not going to get yelled at for not doing them. But at some point, someone might sort of politely explain, oh, we something, some, you know, uh, there's, I don't know, there's a slight, a slight swing. It's not as much of a swing as sort of, you know, a, mm-hmm. a, like a triplet rhythm. It's, it's just this really light thing. It almost is just comes from accenting certain notes. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you feel really passionately about singing and using your voice, but your music doesn't use too much of your voice. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I, well, there's a few things. I think developing my voice to a certain level let me let go of that that I I really did feel like I needed to sing there's a whole phase of my my musicianship where I was doing kind of singer-songwritery stuff Mm -hmm. and um and I was never happy with that and it never felt like a good fit but it wasn't really until I got so that I felt good about singing that I could say oh I, I don't I don't have to do this I can just focus on the thing that I actually have real skill at which is piano well, why did but you feel like I think that the other I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think it maybe comes down to wanting to make a connection with an audience uh, and mm-hmm. feeling like that's, you know, that's a sort of music that really connects with people. It's a, a way of of um, of representing music to people and and just being a performer. Um, that I I think I think there are obviously there's ways of being a, a solo instrumentalist performer and really connecting with with an audience. But I think as a younger person, I was like, well, you know, singing and playing piano, that's that's like 
that's got to be the way. Uh, it's a sort of more standard way of doing it. And um, I think it took me a little while to realize that the, that standard way wasn't the way for me to do it. Okay. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's really reasonable. If it's not for you, it's not for you. If you don't like it, then you don't like it. I mean, I've definitely felt very similar ways growing up. I've I'm currently in my, I need to learn how to sing phase. Um, And I do, I've always wanted to learn how to sing, but you know, I've always felt like I never had a voice that was really good for singing. But that being said, even that, you know, challenging that thought, what does a good singing voice entail? Because even, you know, if I'm hitting the right key or whatever, I still feel, oh, you know, my voice is just not good Mm. enough. Um, because I mean, objectively, I think that singing is another form of vulnerability. It's but so personal and yeah, it is really vulnerable. And it's just, I mean, that was one of the things that I, I realized is, you know, I really like singing in this context, but like, I don't, mm-hmm. nobody's ever going to be, oh, wow, he has this amazing voice, right? That's just like, you know, different people have different skills and that's, or, you know, it, I think it's, it's, uh, there's a vulnerability to singing because it is like you are the instrument, right? Like if I'm playing yeah. a bad piano, like that can be a separate thing to me playing piano badly, right? But if you mm. are singing, you can be singing badly or just someone cannot really like the way your voice works. And it's really hard to unpick those things. Mm. That's like a really great way you framed that. I was like trying to wonder, you know, what is it about, because playing piano for me is very vulnerable as well. I think that instruments tell an amazing story. I think instruments can tell a story just as much as a voice can, but I couldn't understand, you know, what, why is singing Mm. so different than playing an instrument? But I guess, you know, you framed it very well. Instruments are, I consider my piano an extension of my body, but it's an extension. It doesn't necessarily like, I wasn't born with it. Yeah, know? yeah. You can go play a different piano. You can't go sing a different voice. Yes, exactly. So it's like you're stuck with your voice. But then again, I think that music is really subjective. And, you know, if one person doesn't like one voice, it's not to say that everyone doesn't like that voice. Yeah, because... uh, well, there are lots of brilliant voices that are definitely not for everyone. I mean, I remember hearing Joanna yeah. Newsom when Joanna Newsom was first, you know, uh getting big and and people were just like what is this and it you know and it took me she's one of my favorite Mm -hmm. artists but it took me a few goes to really start to be like oh I like this versus just like this is a super weird voice that this person is singing with you know Bjork has a really weird voice and loads of people love her voice um yeah there, there are loads of ways where someone has a unique voice and and just sell it and they find connection with an audience. And I think a big part of that is you can tell that they are comfortable with their voice. They're not apologizing for their voice. Yes. Um, they're not kind of trying to squeeze it into a different box. They're just like yeah. going for it. And, and that's, yeah, I was right about to say, it's yeah. about like loving your voice, yeah. you know, if yeah. you love it, then chances are, you know, you're emulating confidence and other people will see it, hear it and love it too. Yeah. Well, and um, I think this is the thing that, that, exists in instrumental performance too but like so many things it's easier to see with voice because it is the person uh and we all have a voice we don't all have a piano or a clarinet um but I think there's a similar thing where if you can really take your strengths and just go for them and not be sort of apologizing for not being Horowitz or whoever like mm-hmm. you know and, and and not and there's so many little subtle physical ways that people can do that on stage um but if you're just mm-hmm. having fun I think that really comes across and and yeah you know in everything you're doing so I've seen some 
uh, amazing performers do this recently. So I'm like really excited by <laughs> this idea. Well, what about you? Do you feel that you've reached the level of being unapologetic about your art? Yeah, I think that's happened over lockdown, actually. Um, there was oh. a thing, so I've, I've always enjoyed performing, but I think there was a tension that I was holding where I was performing and I was kind of thinking, always thinking about how well the performance was going, kind of not letting myself really love it. Uh, and over the lockdowns, I did live streams from my house and there was something about being at home that was really relaxing, but it is a performance. There are people on the other end of that internet camera line, whatever it is. <laughs> um, and so you, you have to have that focus of a performance and it gave me access to this place where I could leave more space and I could just have fun with things. And, and I, I noticed that in the performances and was just became kind of, became more and more aware of that as I, as I continue mm -hmm. to do the live streams. And that's something that I've then been able to bring into, into live performance, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. So I played a show a few months ago in Exeter and yeah, just walking out and just being like, let's have some fun and just <laughs> like playing this stuff and, you know, things like, because I have this very technical setup, there's always the chance that something will not work in the technology. Just like there's always the chance that you'll play a wrong note or something, right? Yeah. And then when that happens, not sort of being like, oh God, oh, how do I, but just like, oh, okay, that's happened. Um, let's, it happened. Yeah, let's, uh, I'm going to fix it this way. And and kind of going for that without any like fear or, you know, a, apology really just like, oh, no, we're going to, we're going to do that. And I think there's a, a, a way of thinking about it that comes from meditation, which is this idea of a kind of relaxed curiosity which is what I always try to get before I go out on stage is not sort of saying, oh, this has to be a good show, or I, I hope this is a good show, but just, oh. And not even you getting away from just, oh, a good show, but just, oh, I wonder what this show is going to be. Like, this is my the yeah. only time that I will ever be about to play this show. And I'm really curious about how it's going to go. Yeah, and what makes a show good versus bad? Because it can't be the mistakes. Because, I mean, I, I remember when I was like, this is honestly maybe one of my more, more prouder moments. I remember when I was 15 and I was performing <laughs> um, on the piano and there was a part where I completely forgot what it was. And I went from a major key to a minor key mm. and it just shifted the entire piece. I didn't even know what notes I was playing anymore at that point. I just improvised. And then I, you know, at some point went back to like continue, like continuing mm -hmm, on, mm -hmm. on the right track. Um, so afterwards, you know, no one, not a single person noticed. Everyone was, you know, applauding. And like my friends and family were telling me, you know, that was so beautiful. That was so great. My piano teacher was like, what was that? <laughs> because she <laughs> obviously heard. She was like, I'm so confused as to what just happened. What? I would not, even though that was a mistake, I wouldn't consider that a bad performance. Mm -hmm. So like mm -hmm. mistakes don't make a performance good or bad or a show good or bad. So I'm curious what makes a show good versus what makes a show bad? I think it's, it's down to connecting with the audience and showing the audience something. I think if, if there are people there who have an experience of, you know, who feel something, then <laughs> that feels like a great show to me. And, you know, there can be degrees of that. There can be loads of people who have an amazing time or, you know, five people who have an amazing time or, or, you know, Okay, whatever, but it's, uh, 
I think, yeah, that feeling where you, cause you sense the audience and, and there can be a moment where you're playing and you kind of feel the audience go, oh, and whatever that oh is, that's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, this is, this is, now it's happening, right? Now yeah. I'm showing them something. Uh, yeah. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's, I think, that's a moment that I, I look for when I'm playing. That's, yeah, that's amazing, you know, making connections. I think that that is always a huge goal of an artist, connect with their audience. And even if they're, they can't see an audience like during the pandemic it was difficult to visually see an audience mm -hmm. you know maybe you're not getting comments from every single person who's watching but if they're watching especially during a pandemic if they're watching they're choosing to be there mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. whether it's one person or a million people it doesn't matter it's just like even connecting with one person one viewer one listener is such a beautiful experience and that experience can be also recreated from just the comfort of your bedroom when no one's listening at all. You're connecting with yourself. And I think that's also a really, really great practice. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. every time you sit down to play, connect with yourself, connect with your instrument and put on a show for yourself. Um, I think that just really helps you connect with your music. Yeah. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Who's to say that the audience is the only audience? You're also an audience. <laughs> but I know that you have kids, right? I do. Yes. Yes. So I don't get the opportunity to talk to a lot of artists who have families. And I'm really curious as to how, because I can only talk about how my family has played a role, you know, my sisters sure, and my sure, parents, yeah. but not the family that I've created. Mm. So I'm curious as to how your family plays a role in your music. Yeah. So I have a, a four-year-old and a six-year-old and, um, and it is challenging to find time uh, to be creative while parenting. Um, the four and six is much easier than sort of, you know, two and four or, you know, zero and two. There's there's <laughs> definitely a, a bit of a pause in the creative output. Uh, <clears throat> you know, when they're when they're very small and just need you all the time. Um, they're, I mean, it, it, they can be really inspiring because they see everything fresh and you have to be in the moment with kids mm -hmm. if, if you're always thinking like what's the point of this or where are we going with this like they're not thinking any of that they just <laughs> want to build something with their lego or they want to draw this picture and mm -hmm. you know it's it's a for them it's it's very much about just like enjoying what's happening right now and not being attached to you know is are we are we working towards some big project that we can show other people right that's kind of the See, adult something mindset. we can learn from kids though <laughs> for sure for sure and and so i found that's that's something that i've I've had to develop and that I've kind of, you know, been a bit dragged into kicking and screaming because it's not something that comes naturally to me. Um, but I, it's, it's something I'm really grateful for. Um, and they also, I mean, they can just be a great audience where I'll show them some visuals that I'm making and they'll be like, that's great. Or like, they'll get kind of bored and wander off. And it's like, you know, I mean, four and six is not my like, central, central of my target audience, really for my shows mostly, but it, it's great to just get an unfiltered reaction to something that you're making, whether it's, whether it's the visuals or the, the piano, you know, you play something and you just get this really, just a different response to it, to what, you know, what a, an adult would give you. So do you think your music inspires them, them to pursue and love music just as much as you? They definitely have music in their lives. I mean, they'll be singing 
any of the, the sort of family music, just things that we have on, you know, they'll be, they'll be mm. singing it and doing it. There's an interesting thing. So they both play cello. Um, so my partner is a violist and sings. And um, so we wanted them to play an instrument that neither one of us played. Um, cool. But we both, because we both play string instruments, we kind of get the cello in a way that, you know, it's, mm. it, it, um, so, I think that they, I think because we both play music professionally, they kind of assume that it's easy and there's a certain amount of, you know, they'll, they'll do it, but they don't really feel like that because they've not seen the period where we've had to really, really work to be able to do this. I can just sort of pick up a cello and play the things that they're mm. playing. Um, yeah. and, and so I wonder about that if they, we'll need to kind of have a realization that, oh, this isn't something that you just can do. Like it, it can become a very natural thing, but it is also something that you have to spend a lot of time learning. There's just so many aspects yeah. to it, or there's so many, I, I remember from, from we, I used to teach piano and thinking about component skills, right? That you have to be able to have your mm -hmm. hands in this position and your fingers have to be independent and you have to be able to have this control. And then you can do this other thing that we call legato or whatever, right? And it's, you know, and then once you have legato, you can do this, you know, sort of freight, more complex phrasing and you just build up all these bigger and bigger component skills. Mm. That just takes a lot of time. It does. And, it can, and it, I have so many of my, my piano students, you know, they're like, why can't I do that? Like, why can't I play that quick? Or why can't I play like this person? And it's honestly, music does not happen overnight. I feel mm. like, dare I say, learning an instrument is probably one of the biggest commitments you're going to have to make to truly learn an instrument because I've been playing since I was four. I'm now 23 and I'm still learning hmm. about the piano and learning new techniques constantly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the thing that, we have really uh, absorbed as, you know, you, you get to a certain stage in music and you understand that you're always learning and you're never done. Um, but I remember there was a, a piano student, it was a, a dad had brought in his son for a lesson and he was asking me some questions, uh, you know, about, about practicing and things. And then he said, well, when will, when will he be done? And I was like, I, I, excuse me, but he's like, well, how long is it? Gonna, like, when is he going to know how to play? You know, he'll be finished with lessons because he knows how to play the piano. And I was like, well, that's just not <laughs> how it works. Like, I, you know, you could take a year's worth of lessons or 10 years of lessons or 30 years worth of lessons. And, you know, I mean, there is a point at which you become self-sufficient mm -hmm, uh, and mm -hmm. that can happen at different stages. And, you know, you continue learning more and more on your own. And then you learn from kind of more peers and mentors rather than, mm -hmm. you know, going in for a lesson and saying, how do I do this? But, um, but yeah, yeah, you keep growing forever. And he did not like that answer. So I, I don't think that kid came back, but I think oh. it's, I think I was, I was sad for because it's, it's just, you know, it was a, a mental shift that he just couldn't, I mean, maybe he did it later, but in that, in that particular lesson, he wasn't able to, able to do it. Yeah. I mean, I get, I understand it, you know, growing up, um, obviously there was moments where I was like, well, I just, I just want to be able to do this now. Um, but I also feel like personally, and I'm going to hit on depression now, but personally I've gone through a lot of depression and coming back to an instrument that I can objectively see getting better over time. Even if I'm still making mistakes in the moment, maybe in the short term, it's like, oh my God, like I played 
this time I, I played this piece worse today than I did yesterday. Okay, that happens. That's that can be a little bit uh, discouraging. But in the long term, it's like I can play this piece. And last year, I would not have been able to play this piece. Mm, yeah. And so coming back to something that has always been there for me, and something that I can turn to and practice and practice and know that, you know, this is in my control. That is that really, really helped me feel like I had a security blanket around me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, being part of the classical music tradition, you're part of something bigger than yourself. And that's one of the things that, you know, brings meaning to our lives. So that can be really meaningful. Yeah. And I'm curious as to how, um, at what point did you start realizing that, you know, sometimes your mental health isn't great and does music play a role in it? Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the time when I really knew I needed to sort of take charge of, of my mental health was when my younger son was, was very small. <clears throat> and I mean, having a baby come into your life, obviously there's great aspects to it. It's also very difficult and you don't sleep for a while. Uh, and, and that's going to, you know, that's going to take a toll on anyone's mental health. But the hope is that you then bounce back from that as you start to sleep more. And, and that was the thing that wasn't really happening. Um, and, you know, it's been, yeah, it's it's been a, a process in kind of noticing smaller changes so that I can make sure that I stay on top of my mental health while it is good, uh, rather than just sort of working myself to the bone or ignoring it and, and you know, and, until I'm forced to confront something. I mean, music is great, obviously. <laughs> I don't know that music, like I don't know that playing music really is a way that I um, like help my mental health. Sorry, that's a, a very <laughs> thinking thinking it out. No, I think I would have tried to say. Um, I think that the state of my mental health really influences what I do musically. And oh. so when I was uh, uh, not in as good of a place, I wrote a lot of music that's like very still and very spare and very um, not very, uh, not doesn't have a lot of motion in it. And some of that music can be great. Uh, and then, you know, as I, got into a better space there's a lot more dynamic music and a lot more mm -hmm. uh yeah sort of athletic music uh and 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 that's something that I'm excited to write more of uh, you know as as I go along but the album that I'm putting out now has it really charts that course so you see some of the music that's really still and spare and some of the music that's really dynamic and active and athletic um, so, so I was kind of writing through the process of, of doing that, of, of yeah. coming back to mental health. Um, well, actually, first of all, I want to hear your experience in having your first kid versus your second kid, because from what I'm understanding, um, your mental health took a bigger toll after the birth of your second child, right? That's true. I don't know that I would like extrapolate that to other people necessarily, or, you know, if I sort of went through it again, it, it might've been the, you know, two kids instead of one kid, it might've been specifically the second kid, it might've been just that, you know, anything else that was happening. Um, but yeah, I think the, having my first kid, um, 
there's obviously there's there's a dip which I think anybody who's had a kid will relate to um but it didn't it didn't take the same toll that it did the second time and I don't know I don't really know why uh I, I like I don't think I have any real wisdom to offer from that except that you know it, it happened it happened the second time and didn't the first time okay yeah no I mean I don't know is also a valid answer but what I was going to say earlier was, I'm curious as to, you know, you mentioned how um, your kids growing up from like ages zero to two years old, they need you all the time, obviously, like mm-hmm. that kids need their parents all the time. Um, but did that ever hinder how often you created music, how often you turn to music? Yeah, there's just not a lot of space for creativity when you have a very small child. Um, there's, you know, you can kind of sneak away and and play a little bit, but there's, you just need a lot of focus time in order to create music. And, um, you know, there's, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not even, you know, I'm not, I'm not nursing a kid. I'm not, you know, I don't, there's, there's Mm -hmm. ways in which, um, the biology of it, you know, favors me. Um, but it, you know, I'm still getting up in the night. I'm still, you know, being, Mm -hmm. you know, doing a, a, full-time parenting really um so I I think one of the things that that I see a lot of people on you know the internet talking about is how historical geniuses uh you know sort of male historical geniuses always had a, a woman who was taking care of their whole life right <laughs> and they could just go and work all the time and that's not a model that we mostly have anymore I mean there are some people who have relationships like that but you know I wouldn't want one of those um but you also when you don't have any time and I think I think men and women both have this where you're kind of jealous of that sort of relationship like what you know wouldn't that be great if I just had someone who could just take care of all the things and I could just go do my whatever my their, your work is right whether that's you know scientific research or or music or, or anything because you know the uh you know I, I'm obviously you know egalitarianism great uh love it uh but it it means you know one of the things that you give up when you take on this you know an equal parenting role is that you know that time is not available for other things and so um, like I love it and I wouldn't want to change it, but I'm also aware of, yeah, that time is, is not available to be creative and mm-hmm. you have to find, just find other time to do it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And you mentioned, you know, your partner is also in the music industry. So I could only imagine when you're having kids who need all of your attention, there, there must be little time for either one of you to really dive into music, which is something that is such a shared bond between you two I can only imagine Mm. so like I feel like that might have played a really big role in your depression knowing that like you are able to turn to music and then you mentioned how you don't necessarily turn to music as a support system but your music reflects a lot of what you're feeling which means you do create when you're feeling certain type of ways Mm -hmm. whether that's Mm -hmm. up or down so not being able to create it's like journaling you know not being able to it's like for someone who journals all the time not having that time to journal their feelings mm-hmm. can be really really difficult because then you end up bottling them in and then they build up um so you know i assume double that for you and your partner are both like who both use music as a means to create that must have been really really difficult for you too uh this is just a, a constant 
figuring out of you know where you are what you need to do and and where you can find space to be creative oh yeah that's a learning curve right <laughs> mm, yeah it's been great chatting uh thanks for having me um definitely want to mention the album if people are curious what the music is like uh so the album that i have out is called say you're with me it comes out the 24th of june which mm. this might air after that in which case it's out now <laughs> um, the best place to get music if you want to support an artist is Bandcamp, so larkhall.bandcamp.com. Uh, if you're into streaming, it's on all the streaming places, so just search for Lark Hall. Lovely. The other thing I would say is I love when people tag me into things on social media. It makes me feel like I exist in that weird <laughs> world that we're all kind of half stuck in. Um, so if this resonates with you or you want to chat or you want to say what track you enjoy or whatever, um, I'm on all the social medias as well. You can find me there. Lovely. And I will be linking your Bandcamp to the description of this podcast. So oh, thank you. listeners can find you there too. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you yeah, so much for you. opening up and sharing. And again, you have such an interesting story and your art is unheard of. <laughs> so very, very interesting. And I can't wait to see where your art continues to be headed. Cool. Me too. Thanks. <laughs> Have a good one. Yeah, Bye. you too. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you're an artist and you've got a story to share with a passion for music, please do reach out. Whether you're just starting out or you've been in the music industry for years, I would love to hear your story. Follow me on Instagram through my handle at Music Mentality with Angie. Or email me at musicmentalitywithangie at gmail.com. Finally, a huge shout out and thank you to the amazing editor behind these episodes, Aileen Tamer. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time.